Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal Podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Greetings, this is Rob Hartzler from TSAOG Orthopedics in San Antonio. Today on the podcast, we have the honor of welcoming back Dr. Peter Millett, Shoulder and Sports Medicine Specialist at the Stedman Clinic in Vail, Colorado. Dr. Millett, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Rob. Great to be here. Today, we're going to be discussing your article entitled, Clinical Outcomes of Arthroscopic Suprascapular Nerve Decompression for Suprascapular Neuropathy. So, first question regarding this article. It seemed like you really tried to hone in on your patient population that had isolated suprascapular neuropathy by excluding patients with concomitant pathologies. Did you feel like you you got it down to a, a pretty homogeneous group here? Yeah, as much as we could. We were kind of interested in seeing uh, how patients with uh, just pure suprascapular neuropathy responded to surgery. Um, you know, we had we had a number of patients that we did releases on in the setting of massive cuff tears or that had labral tears that um, had large cysts that we repaired the labrum. But this was uh, meant to be just an isolated group of arthroscopic releases, decompressions for suprascapular neuropathy. And it was only, so there were 19 total patients available, 16 uh, were were able to be followed up on during, it looked like about an 11-year period. So it was a pretty rare entity in your practice. Yeah, we had a up to nine-year follow-up, I believe, in the study. Uh, there were, I think, 40-some cases of, that I did suprascapular neurolysis on. And then when we looked at the isolated ones, we had 19 patients and of those, we were able to follow up on 16. So, yeah, I mean, this is not a common thing that I see. You know, it's probably a couple yeah, of years. Yeah, one or two. A, yeah, right, right. One or two a year. And that's, I mean, that's why I really wanted to talk to you about it was because it seems like in these rare problems, expert opinion, you know, carries more weight and is really valuable. So, um, and hoping to just, you know, kind of get some of your thoughts thoughts about it do you i mean were these are these patients usually pretty well worked up before they refer to you or are some of these you know you're you're finding out ba- you know based on your history physical and you know making the diagnosis how does that usually play out in your practice i would say it's about 50 50 you know just off the cuff i would say that some of them um have had the problem for a while and it just was misdiagnosed or unrecognized. Um, and then they got an EMG and then they were referred to me. Some of them came in with nonspecific shoulder complaints of weakness or pain. And in the absence of other findings, we made the diagnosis. You feel like it's something that is is it something that's seeing us as shoulder surgeons more than we are seeing it? Is it that that kind of a phenomenon, or do you think it really is pretty rare? I think it's fairly rare, but it's something to consider in a patient with persistent shoulder pain or, or weakness 
that may have you know minimal findings they might have an mri which shows some atrophy or some evidence of denervation sometimes we've seen a uh, calcified transverse scapular ligament or an ossified ligament and that suggested it um, sometimes it's just based on the, the history that they're an overhead athlete with uh sh with uh, shoulder pain um so i I don't think we're missing that many. I think it's really a rare, a rare condition, but I think it's something just to kind of keep in the back of your mind as a potential cause of shoulder pain or weakness in in uh, in, uh, in patients. And if you're having trouble, if you suspect it, and you're sort of having trouble, you know, making the decision for surgery or not, what do you feel like there's you know, is it a, a diagnostic injection that'll push you over the edge? Is it EMG or is it a combination of findings? What do you think kind of nails it down for you? For me, it's the whole clinical picture. It's a, probably a composite of the exam, the imaging, the EMG, and the uh, and a diagnostic injection. So I, I think all those factors um, would would play a role in the decision to embark upon a, a suprascapular nerve decompression. So kind of a two-part question. Part one, how did you feel like the results were once you looked at them? And then second part, has anything changed about the way that you counsel patients that are, you know, that you're proposing this release for based on the results of the study? Yeah, I think it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like nerve tests uh, or nerve Compre compressive neuropathies in other areas. Um, a positive ENG is usually uh, highly specific, but a negative EMG, they can still have the condition. So in, in those cases, I would consider uh, performing a diagnostic injection and seeing how they respond to it as far as pain relief. Uh, I think overall, the patients tended to improve fairly well in the series, I mean, our AFCS scores went up, the, the strength of the patients seemed to improve. There's some that were very dramatic. Uh, I can think of one recreational tennis player who had it for approximately uh, 10 years that no one could figure out what was going on. And we did a, a suprascapular nerve neurolysis and released the transverse scapular ligament, released at the spinal glenoid notch. And he got dramatic improvement in his in his pain and functional improvements with significant improvements in his strength so i think it's it's variable depending on how long they've had it and the individual patient but i think it's uh it, they can experience real benefit in some settings yeah it looked like you had i mean it's a small number of patients so it didn't reach statistical significance but it looked like the patients that had it for less than a year did better their ASES and SANE scores were close to 90, whereas the patients that were over a year were were moderate, kind of mid 70s to low 80s on those. So, what do you what do you think about that? Is that something we should be counseling people about that if they've had it for longer, they might not expect so much of a benefit? I I don't know if it's I don't know how to counsel them. I mean, I I think these people are sometimes are willing to try something to help them if they're in pain. And I, I think it, you know, experiencing, even though the benefits are not as great as as those who have it early, 
I can think of some patients that have had pretty dramatic uh, uh, relief when they've had it for a long time. So, you know, we have a small series here, so I don't want to make too many generalizations. Too I think much, if right. you become if you become comfortable with a technique, I think the risk of the surgery is pretty minimal, and the potential chance for benefit is is reasonable. So, I think in the right setting, you know. They don't have any secondary gain issues or, you know, other factors which might portend a bad outcome. Uh, I think it's a reasonable approach to uh, to offer them suprascapular nerve release. Any technical tips on it? It's not. It doesn't seem to me to be, you know, super technically challenging. And I, you know, I've done it, you know, three times as many times as in the lab as I've done it for real patients. It seems like something that surgeons want to be taught a lot and, you know, in the cadaver situation, but any, you know, any, any technical tips for surgeons out there? Yeah, I think it's an area that a lot of people are, are not um, particularly comfortable with or haven't um, operated in that part of the shoulder. There's a number of different techniques which have been described for releasing the nerve. Um, I like to start proximally at the transverse scapular ligament. I like to evaluate the ligament on my preoperative imaging and see if it's going if it's ossified or not. Because if it's ossified, it can be challenging to find exactly where it is. Um, if it's not ossified, what you do is find the the conoid ligament, and at the base of the conoid ligament is where the transverse scapular ligament comes across. The suprascapular artery typically goes over the ligament. You do have to be somewhat careful because I have seen some patients who had really no transverse scapular ligament and the nerve was just floating there. So if you were, you know, weren't careful, you could injure the nerve uh, during the dissection. But once you find the ligament, I usually make one or two portals through the trapezius so that I can clear the soft tissues out. I try and protect the suprascapular artery if I can. If it uh, if it starts bleeding, I cauterize it. I don't think that there's much consequence to that, um, but I try and protect it. And then I release the um, transverse scapular ligament with a basket forceps or meniscal type biter. If it's ossified, I'll use a kerosene rongeur from a spine set to actually remove the bone so that we can adequately decompress the nerve at the transverse scapular ligament. And then I'll take a blunt switching stick or a probe and just uh, free the nerve up at at the uh, at the notch. Then what I'll do is if if the uh, compression seems like it's more global or if I think that it's more involving just the infraspinatus, I'll work from within the joint, I'll put a portal through the rotator cuff and I'll do a posterior capsulotomy at the capsulabral junction and identify and elevate the the posterior supraspinatus and the anterior portion of the infraspinatus and then dissect over the rim of the glenoid uh, and uh, identify the nerve at that location and free the, the spinal glenoid ligament. There's another method that uh, has been described going from a direct posterior approach. I don't really have much experience with that. I've usually used a, a transarticular uh, approach performing a capsulotomy. That, that method is more common when they have an associated spinal glenoid notch cyst. Uh, which you can decompress in that sa- at the same time. You reported on how many uh, how many transverse scapular ligaments looked hypertrophied, which is about 
little over 50% of the cases, um, which I thought was kind of an interesting thing to report on. I never, I mean, I don't have a huge experience with these, but I almost never feel like, oh, wow, you know, the the ligament was so big and so compressive on the nerve that, you know, it's not, I guess I haven't really found it to be super technically satisfying that like when I cut it, that the nerve, you know, I saw like a typical kind of hourglass deformity that you'll see at the cubital tunnel. I don't know. I mean, I guess I just, I'm having a hard time formulating the question, but at some level it kind of, I wonder, is that the right operation for a lot of patients with, with suprascapular neuropathy, you know, even if everything else fits, like is, is releasing the ligament, is that what's needed to help them? Do you understand what I'm trying to ask? Is, you know, have you thought about yeah. that before? I have. When I was in practice in my early years, I was working with J.P. Warner and Carl Basmania was really interested in, in this. And J.P. was interested in suprascapular neuropathy with massive cuff tears. And when I was a resident, I worked with a Russ Warren, and I remember learning about how some overhead athletes could get suprascapular neuropathy. So I looked at the anatomy, and I think that the nerve can get sort of a traction effect as it makes the turn through the, the notch. And I, I think that it becomes sort of a focal point of constriction. And I have noticed a few cases, I wouldn't say it's all of them, but I, I, I have noticed that they're can be that appearance where the nerve does look like it's getting constricted there. And in some of those cases, I've actually taken, uh, retracted the nerve uh, laterally, and I've kind of opened up, uh, done an osteoplasty on the bone hmm. uh, to try and widen the notch. Now, this is- You mean kind of deep, really deepening anecdotal. it, or? Uh, just trying to make it so that it's not such a focal point where there's a Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of a turn in the nerve, I guess, um, Got it. or a point where it would be constricted. Now, this is anecdotal. I, I you know, I, I don't have a, a large series to support that, but it, to me, it, it kind of seems that it can be a, a point where there's a, a traction phenomenon on the nerve in that location. Excellent. Well, any other, you know, any other thoughts or uh, pearls from the from the study that you wanted to point out? No, I think it's just something to keep in the back of your mind. I would say that re- doing a suprascapular nerve release is something that you can you should probably learn in the lab first. Key points uh, are to uh, the the fact that you have a normal EMG doesn't necessarily exclude it. I think it still can be a problem. The clinical exam and the history are important, obviously, the imaging studies. If there is a compressive lesion like a, a cyst or some, or some other structural issue, then I think decompressing that uh, should eliminate the, the symptoms. Uh, releasing the nerve is pretty straightforward once you get comfortable with the anatomy where it's, it's right at the base of the conoid ligament. You usually need to make an extra portal or two uh, through the trapezius to facilitate that, visualizing from uh, laterally. And then you can free it up in that location as well as at the spinal glenoid ligament if it, and spinal glenoid notch if it's uh, more of a pure infraspinatus problem. So when you're, when you're actually working on the nerve, are you, do you switch over to a lateral viewing portal or are you viewing from posterior typically? 
so typically when I'm uh, another technical pearl is where you view from I will typically start um, my dissection with the scope in a lateral portal and a posterior portal typically the typical ones you'd use for subacromial decompression and then once I have kind of identified the the coracoclavicular ligament I'll make an accessory posterior lateral portal and I'll view from there and then I'll put I'll put an uh, an elevator an arthroscopic elevator or a switching stick and I'll retract the supraspinatus posteriorly because sometimes uh, in, in a cadaver this when you're learning how to do this the supraspinatus is quite atrophied but in a patient if they don't have significant atrophy yet but they have pain the supraspinatus muscle can still get in your way so retracting that posteriorly so that you can find that ligament is really helpful and then I'll make those portals through the trapezius straight down onto the ligament uh, and then I'll usually work through those to uh, actually protect the nerve and release the ligament. And lay some crepe with your patients and, uh, you know, tell them it takes time for the nerve to recover. But um, I have been impressed with, with how quickly some of the patients have experienced clinical benefits. This article... Clinical Outcomes of Arthroscopic Suprascapular Nerve Decompression or Suprascapular Neuropathy can be found on the Arthroscopy Journal's website at arthroscopyjournal.org.